Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. It has been a blessing to have Dr. and Mrs. Shoemate part of our ministry. I've shared with uh, you before, but uh, Dr. Shoemate had been teaching for us, and after the, the death of uh, Dr. Tetro, we needed somebody who would be the academic dean for the college, and we had been praying and, and asking and uh, going different directions, and just no doors were really opening. And we were at a, actually at a, a board meeting together, and uh, Pastor Nathan and I were talking with, with Dr. Shoemate and jokingly said, we would love to have you in that position, thinking there was no possibility of that because he was involved in ministry elsewhere, and we were just thrilled to have him teaching for us. And later he talked with Pastor Nathan and said, were, were you serious about that? And he said, well, yes and no, we weren't because we didn't think it was a possibility, but if it is a possibility, we're very serious about it. And so the Lord worked and opened the door for the, the shoemates to, to come and be part of our ministry. Uh, they had a number of other things to finalize, and now they're in the process of moving closer and so that they will be here. But to have both uh, Dr. Shoemate involved in the college and then his wife over there and, and working, it, it's just been a tremendous blessing. Their desire is to be involved in the ministry here, committed to see the work of the Lord go forward. And they're, they're such a great encouragement to me personally and to our ministry over all. And so I've asked Dr. Shoemate if he would open God's Word for us this evening. And I know our hearts will be challenged and encouraged by that. Dr. Shoemate. Thank you. Thank you. Would you please uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Fell off the tie. That's why they call it a lapel. That's better. How about now? Is that better? Okay, it's, uh, it's, it is a real joy to be here. I, I uh, didn't realize that, uh, that uh, the folks considered my coming uh, to be the, uh, the dean uh, a joke, but um, no, but that's not what he said. That's not what he said. No, it was kind of funny. They were joking they, uh, about it, and I thought, well, you know, so the Lord really, uh, really uh, has blessed us. I wanted to thank everyone here. Uh, this ministry has been a blessing to us for many years. It started out with our children. We had uh, three of our children have come here. And um, we got to know folks here as a result of that. And, and you've been such a blessing and encouragement to all our children uh, that have come. And, and we want to thank you for that. And also... Um, it's been a privilege to be a part of the ministry and teaching in the college and working in the seminary. But, but, uh, but also, since we've come here to be a part of Tri-City Baptist Church, you've been just tremendously uh, gracious and kind to us. And, um, and uh, we just really enjoyed becoming part of the church family. Uh, many of you uh, we recognize and still uh, I don't know by name. Uh, but we, we hope to get to know uh, all of you um, uh, much better, and we want to thank you uh, for all your kindness, all your kindness to us. Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, we will begin reading in verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Dear Father, we pray that you would open our hearts this evening to the truth of your word, that the Lord Jesus Christ is 
our great king, our great leader. Help us to trust in him, especially in this time when it's so easy to get distracted, uh, being distracted by all of the activities of the season, being distracted by all the secularism that is around us and the materialism. But even more than that, Lord, even potentially being distracted by doing religious things without acknowledging the God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we do all of these things. Help us, Lord, to trust you this evening and to be a blessing to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've been kind of noticing the, uh, the uh, decorations for the, the uh, season, and they're really quite interesting and varied. I've noticed that, um, you know, you have the, the colored lights, you have the holly, you have Rudolph and Mickey and Minnie and the abominable snow monster and polar bears, and I even saw some dinosaurs with stocking hats on. I'm not sure what that says about the Ice Age or any of that business. But um, you see all of these different things. And it was kind of sad to me in a way that you see, in a sense, over time, you see less and less of an emphasis on the birth of Christ. And it becomes sort of like a winter holiday uh, for many people. But even if you uh, see manger scenes and even if you uh, hear uh, or see religious uh, language, that doesn't mean that people necessarily... Uh, have a proper understanding of what is the significance of the birth of this child. Uh, There are many who who believe that Jesus Christ came, even perhaps that he's the Son of God, but that he came sort of to give us goodwill one to another and create a spirit of generosity and kindness, a kind of a humanistic Christmas. And and sadly, even for us as believers, sometimes, uh, although we acknowledge theologically that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross and that he rose again from the dead and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that as this text teaches us, he is going to be coming again to rule and to reign in this world. Sadly, oftentimes we allow the pressure of the season and the difficulties in our lives to cause us to fail to live in a way that's consistent with who he is. And that, I think, is really what we we can receive from uh, this very familiar text in chapter 9, verse 6, which says that Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, of course, the context, right, the context of this is Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. preaching to Israel, and he is telling them that God is going to send this messianic king. He's going to send this descendant of David who is going to uh, come, and he's going to reverse the decline and the and deal with the sin, and he's going to solve the problem of the disobedience and uh, the uh, unfaithfulness of Israel, and he's going to bring in this great kingdom and this wonderful time of prosperity and joy for God's people. And that is really the context here of Isaiah uh, chapter 9. But it's interesting, the way the chapter is set up and the way it functions in the book of Isaiah is it demonstrates that only this divine Messiah is qualified for this role. And, and we're going to see, looking at the context of this passage, that, that Isaiah is a book that's both about Israel's failure, Israel's failure as a, as a priestly people or a, or a kingdom of priests that God established, Israel's failure as God's witness, Israel's failure as God's servant, even the failure of the Davidic kingship that God had established in order to bring Israel and keep Israel close to him, that Isaiah is a book that is a book of failure. But it's also a book of hope. Because in human failure, divine success shines out all the brighter. The Messiah is going to come and he is going to fulfill the prophecies that God promised through Israel and he's going to redeem the nation not just in terms of their prosperity, but in terms of their mission. Israel is going to be able to be successful in the person of the Messiah. Now, I think that's a lesson that we need to, uh, to take to heart in the, these days. You know, we live in a fallen, broken planet. And, and the more you pay attention to what's going on around, it seems like things just continue to get worse and worse. And in this world of greater and greater wickedness, 
we know that even uh, God's people often fail. And even the leaders that God has given to God's people often fail. And it's really easy to get discouraged. It's really easy to say, yes, we understand Jesus Christ has done these wonderful things and he is going to be coming again, but I just struggle with victory in my own life. We live in a fallen, broken world. And as in the days of Isaiah, even God's people and their spiritual leaders frequently fail. But because Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to rule the world, he is also the only one qualified to rule our lives. And I think that that's the thing we have to remember most as we look through this, work through this Christmas season. Now, the context, the book of Isaiah. Here we have chapter 9 of Isaiah, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. It's the second longest prophetic book, uh, as second only to Jeremiah in length. It is placed at the head of the latter prophets. In the, in, the, in the division of the Bible, you notice that among the prophets, it's the first book. It has special regard. The New Testament quotes Isaiah more often than all the other prophets combined. It's quoted or alluded to perhaps up to 400 times in the New Testament. An extremely important book. It's often been called, been called the evangelical prophet or the fifth gospel because the great teaching on the nature of salvation and about the coming Messiah. Even if all we had about Jesus Christ, even if all we had about the Messiah was what we found in the book of Isaiah, we would know that the Messiah would be divine and yet a human being, that he would be born miraculously of a virgin, that he would be from an obscure and unimportant branch of the Davidic line, that he would minister in Galilee, that he would suffer and die vicariously for the sins of his people, that he would gather his people in righteousness and would also be a light to the Gentile nations, that he would rule in power and great wisdom, and that his kingdom would be one of righteousness and peace. We would know all of that if all we had about the Messiah was, was what we find in the book of Isaiah. Now, in order to understand what's going on in this text, and especially how it would apply to us, let's think for a moment about where it occurs in the book. The section of Isaiah that we are in begins with chapter 6, and you're uh, familiar, many of you I know are familiar with chapter, the beginning part of chapter 6 with Isaiah's call, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in, in his temple, and he is called to serve the Lord. And if, and if you would, please just turn back to, ch to chapter 6 for just a moment, because it's often, uh, we often stop once Isaiah says, here am I, send me, right? Look at verse, uh, look at verse um, 8. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now just to get a context or an understanding of what's going on here, the way Isaiah made the heart of the people heavy so that they would not understand was by telling them the truth. It wasn't by keeping the truth from them, it was by telling them the truth. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, how it works is if, if someone tells you the truth and you don't want to hear it or you don't want to do it, then you harden your heart to the truth. The truth softens those who are disposed to obey it and submit to it, but it hardens those who refuse to submit and to obey. And what God is saying to Isaiah is, you're going to go preach to this people, but the more you preach to them, the harder their hearts are going to get. In other words, you're not going to have any success in your ministry. Now, you know, it's, it, that can be extremely, if you think of it, can be very discouraging, but that was the lot of most of the prophets for most of the time they preached. I would say that, that there were prophets and they had some measure of success. But, but the hardness of the people's hearts were such, was such that their ministry or the effect of the ministry of these prophets was, was to, in a, in a large sense, be many years since subsequent to their preaching. And then notice what Isaiah says in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long is this going to be? And he said, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants. 
The house is without man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places and many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will it be, will be it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. The idea is God was not going to completely destroy the people. He was going to bring great catastrophe and great judgment, but he was not going to completely destroy the people. So chapter 6 teaches us that Israel, the people will not listen. The context is Israel's failure. Then in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1, we have, the, we have the account of Ahaz, who is afraid because the northern kingdom of Israel is making an alliance with the kingdom of Syria to come down and do regime change. That is, to take Ahaz off the throne. Ahaz is the descendant of David. He's the Davidic king. He's the legitimate king of Israel. And they were going to push him off the throne and kill him and then put in somebody else in his place because they wanted to change the foreign policy. Uh, Assyria was a great and mighty power, and these two nations and some other nations said, we need to get a coalition together. Judah wasn't interested in getting in the coalition. They wanted, he wanted to join forces with Assyria. And so uh, these two nations in the north decided they were going to do something about it. They were going to institute regime change. And so everyone is scared. Everyone is afraid. And Isaiah is sent to Ahaz and says, don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Right? You had all these different foreign policies. Either you could go with the Assyrians or you could get the Egyptians to help you or you could form a coalition. But the kings didn't want to do the one thing that God wanted them to do, which was just to trust him. Just to trust him. And Ahaz, and, and Isaiah says, look, ask for a sign. <laughs> ask for a sign. Any, as high in the heaven for height or in the earth for depth, any kind of a sign you ask for. And Ahaz says, I will not ask a sign. I will not test the Lord. And he wasn't being spiritual. He had already made up his mind what he was going to do. He was going to trust in the Assyrian king. And he didn't want God interfering with his plans. And so here we have in chapter 7, where um, the Lord says to Ahaz in verse 13, then he said, "Hear now, O house of David, is it a small? It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary God also?" Ahaz, in the person of Ahaz, the Davidic dynasty has failed to do what God ordained it to do, which was to make the nation trust God. The whole point of the king was to keep the nation following and obeying God. So now the the nation has failed. The Davidic kingship kingship has failed. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, we have the account where the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to lay waste to the land. The, the judgment is coming. The latter part of chapter 8, there is an encouragement to the faithful remnant to continue to trust God. So it's all looking very negative at this point. The, the remnant, the, the prophet himself needs encouragement, but the nation as a whole is not listening. And the rulers of the nation have decided to go their own way and judgment is coming. A very negative situation. And that's when we get into our current chapter. It's in this very dark time when the Lord says that the people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now this is, the, the words here are in the past tense. The verbs are in the past tense. They walked in darkness. They have seen a great light. Upon them the light has shined. But the context makes it clear that this is a prophetic way of speaking. In other words, this is really future. And the use of the past tense is a, a method of demonstrating that this is for sure going to happen. It's as good as done. This is not, the, the, the judgment is not going to be the end of the story. God is going to send a light. He is going to send blessing. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Remember the Midianites, and when God used Gideon to deliver Israel from the armies of the Midianites. He said, For every sandal, every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning 
and fuel the fire. This great deliverance is not going to be a result of human effort or human military power. It's going to be the result of God working and God alone. And so here we have this promise. And now we come to verse 6, which is our text for this evening. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here we have the promise, and the promise centers in this child born, in this son given. What we have here, and, and, and you notice the punctuation here in our, in our translation, it is wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty God, comma, everlasting father, comma, prince of peace. The, 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 the original grammar allows for that structure. It also allows for the structure where you have uh, four pairs. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And I think, as we'll see, I think there are some reasons for preferring that structure or that punctuation, that there are four pairs of words here. And these pairs of words, then, are structured in such a way to show us that only Jesus Christ, only the Messiah is qualified to be this ruler. Only he is qualified to be this deliverer, and therefore only he is qualified to rule our lives as well. What are these four pairs? Well, the the first two are wonder, counselor. The second one is literally God, hero. The third one is literally father of eternity. And the last one is prince of peace. And it's interesting, each one of these pairs, you have a quality or an activity of a ruler, and then you have a divine attribute that makes this ruler special. So you have the counselor. All rulers needed wisdom. And yet he is a counselor that causes wonder and amazement. Um, God hero. Every, every um, king was at that day was also a warrior. He would lead his troops into battle. And yet this is not just any hero. This is the God hero. The father of eternity. We'll explain that in a little bit. But fathers, father was a term used for kings to refer to their care, tender care and concern for their people. And yet this father, this king would never die. He is the father forever. And then finally, the prince of peace. The, the prince was the one who administered the blessings of the kingdom. And this was the prince that would bring permanent and blessed peace. These are the four qualities, and what they explain is that this Messiah is the one who is wise enough, I mean, the one who is qualified to rule the world. Now, why did, here's the question, why did Isaiah give this prophecy to his contemporaries? Remember, the judgment hasn't even come yet. These are people who are living before the judgment comes, And yet Isaiah is giving them this prophecy. Well, I believe it's the same reason that he gives the prophecy to us. Right? To motivate us to trust God. In our case, we already know what Jesus has accomplished in his first coming. But you know what? We still have to trust him, don't we? We still have to rely on him in a wicked world. In other words, he has redeemed us. He has bought us back from the slave market of sin. He has sent us his Holy Spirit. And yet we still live in a life that involves struggle and challenge. We still live in a world that's fallen. We still have a carnal tendency, a sinful tendency that resides within us that is trying to trip us up. We still are tempted to not believe in God. And, and I think even um, uh, as in, in, a, in a way that's ironic... During this time when we are focusing on the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, everything gets so hectic and gets so busy and we get so preoccupied that oftentimes it is a time of spiritual struggle, especially for us. Holidays are difficult times for many people and also for many Christians. But the qualities that make Jesus Christ the one who who is the only one qualified to rule the world in the future, are the qualities that lead us to trust him to rule our lives today. And so I want to focus in on these four pairs just briefly and help us understand what God is teaching us through them. So the first point is this. 
Jesus, the Messiah, is the only one wise enough to direct your life. He is the wonder counselor. Now, of course, the counselor, this is someone who was, who was, um, had this as his activity, or that was, in a sense, his, um, his occupation or his role. Think of Joseph in Egypt, or think of Daniel in Babylon. Someone who was there to advise and give counsel uh, to the king. We know that wisdom is one of the indispensable requirements of leadership. You know, the, the, if you, as you're involved in leadership, uh, as you get more and more responsibility, you come to realize how hard it is to know what to do in many situations, right? Even, even when you, you have the word of God, you have the commandments of God, you know the principles, but so many times when we're facing difficult situation, the principles seem to cut across one another, right? I don't want to be an unnecessary, I don't necessarily cause an offense to this person or that group, but I have to do something. Um, I, I, I don't want to um, uh, I, I don't want to um, be uh, lazy. I don't want to fail to plan, but I want to make sure that I'm trusting God in the midst of all of my plans. And, and frankly, a, a robot can't live the Christian life. You can't just take the statements of Scripture and run them through a computer and out comes your answer and you know exactly what it is you need to do. We need to pray for Holy Spirit Wisdom. Wisdom is essential for leadership. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But you know what? Jesus Christ doesn't need any counselors. Jesus Christ is the wonder counselor. That word wonder is related to the mighty acts of God, but it has to do with the reaction of people to the astonishing things that God does. Remember um, when it says in Matthew... Uh, it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. In fact, the wisdom of Jesus Christ is even greater than this. It says in John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the source of all light and all life for his people, for those who trust in him. He is the one that we can trust in. Well, I think we accept this as a matter of principle. That The challenge comes when we're forced to do it in a particular situation uh, in our lives. Um, um, I know that, that um, well, see, Pastor mentioned that we're moving and we're moving closer. And we're very excited about that. But, you know, I had kind of a, uh, an experience here the last few days that have been trying uh, my faith. Um, uh, I come, my, my dad was an engineer, right? And you know about engineers, right? Engineers go to someone's house, and so I, I see you bought a new one. You didn't have to do that. I could have built your refrigerator, right? That's what engineers do. And, and I, I really blessed by the fact that it, it gave me this desire to fix things. Now, I'm not an engineer. I thought I can't do the math, right? I'm not going to be an engineer. But I do like trying to fix things. And, you know, you get this kind of feeling. Well, hey, I can fix stuff, right? Especially little stuff. But I'm just, I'm just striking out here. We, we're getting ready to sell the house. And if you've sold the house recently, you know that, that, that the buyer comes in and says, you know, you need to fix this and fix this and fix this and fix this. Right, and some are big things, and some are little things, and so one of them was the dishwasher. So the the uh, there were a few things to fix in the dishwasher. We said, "Oh, well, we won't buy a new dishwasher. We'll just I'll just fix the old dishwasher." So we're going to order the parts. Well, the parts can't come till the end of the year, so I can't order the parts. I say, "Well, okay, we'll we'll go." There's a sort of a secondhand store nearby. We'll go buy a dishwasher, and I'll get it all ready, and I'll install it. And, and so I get it. It's a really nice one. Got it inexpensively. Had to do some things and fooling with it. Okay, how do you wire it up? And I said, well, I'm afraid. So I got the electrician to show me how to wire it up. And we did all this stuff. And it leaked. <laughs> and it was one of those all sales are final. <laughs> so I ended up buying a new one anyway, right? So that was strike one. The other one was, okay, you've got, you know, you've, you've got the outside hose connections for your hose, right? Okay, no big deal. The handles were missing. They'd been gone for some time. 
And I, you know, I never bothered. I always just used the wrench on it, the little adjustable wrench on it, right? But they said, no, you got to. So I looked and looked. I couldn't find the kind that we're on. So I went to the Home Depot, bought it, wouldn't fit. I said, okay, well, I can get my Dremel tool out and I can make it fit. Well, I couldn't make it fit. Finally got one and I made it fit. But the type, it, it was a ball valve. And so the way you needed a lever because you just couldn't turn the one. So that didn't work. Then I saw a lever online. I bought that. And I said, that looks just like it. It's just like it. It's exactly the right shape. I got it home. The hole was too big. And I said, okay, well, I'll cut it off with the Dremel tool. So I cut it off the Dremel tool. And then, I, and, and then I'm like, okay, I've got to drill a hole. Then I've got to make the hole kind of oblong. So I'm fooling with it. And I'm like, okay, don't. And, and okay, finally I get it on there and I screw it on real tight. And by that time, I had ruined the valve in the thing. So... <laughs> I had to call the plumber anyway, right? So after a day, you call the plumber anyway, and it's like, you know, 500 bucks. And it's just like, it's just discouraging. And I'm like, Lord, <laughs> I really think you want us to move closer to Tri-City and IBC. We really believe this is what you want. You've been engineering it. It's been working. And now, you know, why am I wasting all of this time? And of course, I know the answer. I just don't like it. The answer is that there is something in here that God wants to work on, right? And it has to do with this idea that I think I can handle it, right? You know, the big things in life are things that you, that oftentimes we don't struggle with the big trials because we know we've got to trust God. It's the little stuff that we think we can handle. Isn't that the case? Isn't it? Don't you find you get totally frustrated and upset and you say mean things to people and whatever you do you're doing it with the little the little things and and but the point is that God knows what he's doing in our lives Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor and and what I've got to do is just stop and say Lord you know what's best in the big things and in the little things well most of us in theory at least we believe that the Lord has the right to set policy, but we sometimes struggle with believing that he, can re- he will really solve our particular problem. It may be external, finance, work, family pressures, or it may be internal. You know, a lot of pressures around Christmas time, right? And it depends on your family, it depends on your relationships, it depends on your situation. But you know, like, okay, you know, your brother-in-law, their family, they they sent you one of those like sausage and cheese trays, you know, all you got them was a card, right? So now you feel like, oh, you know, I feel terrible. So this year I got to, you know, and so you start adding up all it's going to cost to, so you don't feel guilty for leaving people out of your thing. And so there's that issue. And then there's the issue of the fact that everyone in your neighborhood has their direct decorations up and you don't. And now, you know, maybe you're like some people, they just like leave them up all year, you know, so they (laughs) make sure. So, you know, but it's funny how that kind of stuff can get to us when we feel like people's expectations. Or how about, you, you know, I can't go to this activity and then I got this party and then I got this thing and I got this family get together. And you go to be a blessing to people and you're so grumpy that you're not a blessing to anybody. Um, we've got to trust the Lord. We've got to trust the Lord. And I think that the struggle I think that we often have with that kind of thing is not so much about the the cheese tray, right? It's not so much about the, it's it's about the feeling that I'm just not being the kind of person. I'm just not having the kind of testimony that I want to have. I want to have a testimony of my family and I'm afraid I've offended them. Or I want to take a chance to witness and I either don't, you know, don't have the courage to do it when I, or I don't feel like it's the right time or I haven't, been, uh, haven't honored my, my parents the way I should have honored them, or I haven't done for my children what I think I ought to do uh, for them. And I think we struggle with this sense that we're just not making progress spiritually in our lives like we would like to. Well, Jesus Christ is not only the wonderful counselor, he's also the mighty God, or literally the God hero. He is the only one powerful enough to ensure our victory. See, regardless of how it looks now, God has promised us victory. He has promised us that he will preserve us blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. And I know that that has a primary application 
to our justification before God, but I also believe it applies to our progressive sanctification, that God is making us what we ought to be. And yes, when we, when we stand before him and we see him as he is, there will be this incredible leap, light years, warp speed leap into glorification. But you know what? You are not the same person you were a year ago, if you're a believer. You're not the same person you were 10 years ago. And we're like our, we're like our kids, right? You know, am I growing? Yes, you're growing, right? I don't feel like I'm growing. One of my, my grandsons was so cute. He, 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 he came to his mom one time and said, Mom, Mommy, he says, everyone is telling me I'm just getting so big and I'm going to be so big, and, but look at my hands. <laughs> he was still small. I think that he thought that once he got to be a certain age, he would like all of a sudden be great big, right? And, and he was discouraged. But I think we as believers can be discouraged. In, 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 in the days of Isaiah, kings led their armies, their nations into battle. Think with me for a moment about David and Goliath and what's going on with that story. Here's David, here's Saul. Saul is the de facto or he's the act, uh, de facto king of Israel. But God has already anointed David, and the Bible says that after God had, um, had Samuel anoint David to be king, the Holy Spirit left Saul and came upon David. And that's the key to understanding chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, the story of David and Goliath. Saul can do nothing against this giant. Not only does he not fight the giant, he, he's afraid to fight the giant. But he can't even help David fight the giant, right? He tries to give him his armor, and that's no good. And he discourages David and says, you can't go, right? He is incapable of doing what the king needs to do to lead the people because he does not have the Holy Spirit upon him anymore. David does, and therefore David, regardless of the fact that he's not a soldier from his youth, and, and he has this weapon, which is a formidable weapon, but it's a shepherd's weapon. And he goes out there without any armor, and he goes out and he takes down the giant. And not only takes down the giant, but he, he gives this incredible sermon where he says that, that I will defeat you and I will kill you so that you will know that there's a God in Israel. And he says, so all this assembly, meaning Israel, will know that the battle is not one with a sword because the battle is of the Lord. And he was being what, what he was supposed to be as a king. He was being the great hero. But you know what? Jesus Christ is the God hero. And yes, there is a victory coming. But you know what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and and uh, release them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, there is an ultimate victory coming, but Jesus Christ has already earned the victory, right? The victory that is coming, even the great victory where the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, as it says in Revelation, and takes the earth back for God, that's a mopping up operation. He won that victory on Calvary. And not only did he win it for the earth, he won it for you. He's already won the victory for you. Now, now it's true. He, he wants us to appreciate it. He wants us to experience it. And so he allows for these pressures and these difficulties and even these failures in our lives. You know, sometimes you, 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 know, sometimes you can't succeed where you would hope to succeed. Sometimes you can't fix the faucet. Or sometimes you can't finish the class. Or sometimes the promise that you made you can't keep and you feel like a failure. But God has already won the victory through Jesus Christ. We can trust him. Not only for the world and what he's going to do in the world one day, but for what he can do in my life today. Well, you might ask the question, if Christ is so powerful and I belong to him, then why am I having so many problems? James says the trying of our faith or the testing of our faith works patience. And one of the reasons troubles test our faith is that our feeling is, God, if you really love me, if you really had won the victory, then why am I not experiencing more victory right now? Well, I think the answer is that the greatest opponent of the glory of God is not the unbeliever. The greatest opponent to the glory of God is not the unbeliever. It's the self-sufficient believer. God does not want us to trust ourselves. 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for a second. This, Paul tells a wonderful thing here, a tremendous truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, verses 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. In other words, it was, it was, death was imminent. as It looked like death was imminent. That, and what's the point of that? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I think that's a lot of what's going on in our lives when we are struggling with these trials. Jesus Christ has won the victory. He's the only one who was able to give us victory in our lives. But the third quality here, we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, he is the everlasting father, it says in our translation. Literally the father of eternity. Now this is a bit of a challenge because um, this is not a reflection of the Trinity. We need to be careful here. Because while the Father is God and the Spirit is God and the Son is God, the Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Spirit, right? The, the, the three persons of the Trinity remain distinct. They are distinct even though there, there is one God and each is God. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. If, if you, someone tries to explain the Trinity to you, run away. They can't. Illustrations of the Trinity have a tendency to push us into some kind of heresy or another. It is something that's beyond our comprehension. I don't think God has put any analogy in this world to the Trinity. And there is an incomprehensibility about it. That doesn't mean we can't understand what God says about it. It just means we can't take the whole thing into our brains. Right? We don't have the mental horsepower to do that. So, so this is not referring to God the Father. It's referring to God the Son. So why is he called, therefore, the, the eternal Father or the Father of eternity? Well, I think the key to this is that the term Father was a term that was sometimes applied to a king. Okay? It's a function of kingship. Even in, 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 in archaeology, secular uh, studies in archaeology, uh, Hammurabi, who was the, a king in Babylon around 1750 BC, he refers to himself as though he were the natural father of his subjects. The king is like the father, and we use that phrase, right? We talk about George Washington be the father of his country, and we talk about the town fathers, right? There is this familial picture that's given, and we see that, uh, it's interesting in scripture, we see that applied to the Lord. In Isaiah 63, 16, it says, Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting. And then, of course, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. God is like a father to his people. And this, of course, was something that a king was to do. The king was supposed to, if he was a good king, was supposed to take care of his people and care about his people and meet the needs of his people like a father would meet the needs of his children. But it's interesting, there was always a problem in Israel. Think with me for a moment. Most of the kings in Israel were bad kings. All the northern kings were bad kings. Most of the southern kings were bad kings. There were a few good kings. There were some kings that started out well and then ended poorly. I think of Uzziah, who was a strong king for the Lord, but when his heart was lifted up, when he was powerful, he got proud and he went into the temple and tried to offer incense and he became a leper and was judged by God. So, so a king could be good for a while and then fall off, right? Mess up. Or uh, a king could be good for his whole life, but then inevitably would die. And now you have the son of the king. Think about Hezekiah for a second. One of the great kings, one of the good godly kings of Israel. Who was his son? Manasseh, who was the worst, one of the worst kings in Israel's history. So much so that God said, I'm going to send Israel to captivity. And even after a revival, he said, I'm still going to send you into captivity. 
because of the sins of Manasseh. But Jesus Christ is always going to be the father of his subjects or of his people. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He will always care for us. Right? I think there's a, there's a great danger in, in our salvation and thinking, well, salvation, that God's forgiven me of my sins, but now I've kind of got to earn his favor on a daily basis. That's just not true. We never earn God's favor. His favor is always a matter of his grace. Now, because he favors us, because he loves us, we should strive to live for him, and it pleases him when we can honor him, and he disciplines us as a loving father, but he's never going to stop being our father. And then finally, he's called perhaps the title that we know best. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the only one faithful enough to guarantee you blessing. It's interesting, these words, prince, that seems a little bit odd too. Jesus Christ is king, right? Why, are we, why is he called a prince? A prince was typically a subordinate ruler. Uh, the, the word is sometimes translated chief. It has the idea of an administrator. Why is he called a prince? I think that's really important. You know that the king of Israel was always the vice regent. You'd say the vice king. <laughs> he was the vice regent. Because who is Israel's king? God is Israel's king. And Jesus Christ, although he is himself God, yet he humbled himself and became a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And because he humbled himself and was faithful to his heavenly father in his entire life and ministry, even to the point of the death of the cross, he is able then to administer peace to his people. He's the prince who brings peace. Now, the word peace there uh, is related to the word shalom. And it is more than simply the absence of conflict. There is an idea of wholeness, that the relationship is whole. There is an idea of blessing. Turn to Numbers chapter 6 with me, if you will. Numbers chapter 6. This is the ironic blessing. This is the blessing that God told Aaron as the high priest to put upon his people. And you, some of you may have memorized this as well. Verse 22 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then it says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Peace in the, in the, of the Old Testament concept of peace is very much tied in with the idea of blessing or prosperity or wholeness. In other words, it's the whole package. It's the whole package. I mentioned earlier that we have this tendency to believe that, well, God's forgiven me but I still struggle with anxiety. God's forgiven me, but I still don't know about the future. God has forgiven me, and God loves me, I know, but I'm still not sure how things are going to work out. I would remind you of what it says in Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is okay between me and God. Now, you know what? That's true even when you fail, right? It, it's not that God does not discipline. He does, but he always disciplines us in love. I, even while I'm under his discipline, I have peace with him. Now, how can that be? It is that that relationship, and you say, well, it, how can I be sure of that? Look, it says, having been justified by faith. I want you to imagine something with me. Um, and it doesn't really work exactly this way because God's attributes or his qualities are not in conflict. But just bear with me for a moment to, just to convey the idea. So imagine I'm over here and I'm outside of Christ. I am under the condemnation and judgment of God. The Bible says God is angry with sinners every day. Right? God's justice is saying, judge this person. Look, judge this person. That person has sinned. 
judge him, judge him, judge him, because God's justice is demanding it, and yet God is long-suffering and patient and is saying, wait, 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 wait. Now, people who remain outside of Christ, it says in Romans, they're storing up wrath to the day of wrath. It's almost like there is, God has built a dam against his judgment and the water keeps rising. And when the dam finally breaks, all that judgment is coming because uh, the, the righteousness of God has not been satisfied, right? It's just the ju- judgment has been deferred. But God's mercy is saying, is, 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 is holding back his judgment. But now imagine that I am in Christ and I have been justified. Now God's mercy and his love and compassion is saying of me, his child, bless this child, right? Help this child, but what's his justice saying? Bless this child. <laughs> Bless this child. Why? Because his justice has been completely satisfied in Jesus. The point is, I have to have peace with God. If I don't have peace with God, right? If my relationship is not right with God in Jesus Christ, if I am not on a fundamentally uh, sound basis with God, then the sun won't come up tomorrow morning. Because God made a promise and is based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, I don't want, don't, don't take this as, as, as permission for license, right? We have many warnings in the New Testament not to take the grace of God and make it an occasion for the flesh, right? But the point is that, that because of regeneration, <laughs> if you are born again, that should do what to you? That should motivate you to serve God. If you've been saved by the grace of God and your heart has been changed, the very fact of God's mercy is going to make you want to honor God and please God with your life. It's not going to cause you to want to go out and sin. But so oftentimes as Christians, we get discouraged because we feel like that we are failures. We have failed God. So what should we do this Christmas? Well, you can put up decorations on your house or not put up decorations. You can put up a tree or not put up a tree. You can do what you want with regard to that. But let's decorate our lives this Christmas. How about? Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. Therefore, let's listen to his word. Let's take time away from all the busyness and listen to his word. He is the great God, the mighty God. Let's seek his victory. Don't worry about whether you can get the victory. Pray for his victory in your life and in your ministry. He's the father of eternity, the eternal father. Rejoice in his loving care. He loves you. And he's the prince of peace. Rest in his provision and his grace. And let's walk through this Christmas season adorning the truth of the birth of our great king by allowing him to be in our lives what he's going to be one day for the whole world. Father.